0: Welcome to Nishi History, where we eschew the most famous tales and spotlight the lesser known stories, the forgotten names, the interesting places, and the random topics of history. With me, Jessup Riggs, we'll dive deep into the archives and embark on a journey scouring the nooks and crannies of history. Today's is the story of an ancient civilization's rise and fall, of a culture and society we can only guess at. It's a story of a thousand temples that have lasted centuries. Today is the story of Cambodia's Kuma Empire. Welcome to 2024, my friends. Sorry for the delays. I am a horrendous procrastinator, and I always think on hard weeks, you know, I'll just do a fun, silly episode with minimal research, and then I get all excited and invested in the topic, and it takes me forever. Case in point, this episode coming out several days late, Um, but stick with me. I promise. I, I learn and grow, and even if the episodes come out at weird times, you'll always learn something new. I guarantee it. All right, so let's get into the Kuma Empire and forty-five minutes of me absolutely annihilating ancient Cambodian names. We're going to start with the creations and the foundations of the Kuma Empire, but I do have a preface. The Kuma Empire was huge in its time. At its height, it was bigger than the Byzantine Empire, which I shall cover at some time in the future because I love ancient civilizations, but for now, just know that's huge. Like it didn't get bigger than the Byzantine Empire, except for the Kuma. (laughs) So being a quote unquote powerhouse, the Kuma Empire was really involved in conquering and wars and things like that. But I cut out a lot of specific details of these conflicts just for the sake of time and clarity. But yeah, just just know the picture like Most societies, honestly, wasn't all shiny and happy. There was a lot of conflict, a lot of warfare and conquering. We're just not going to talk about it. Instead, right now, we are going to talk about the start of the empire. I'm going to read an abstract of Peter Fibiger-Bang et al.'s book, The Oxford World History of Empire. Quote, Founded in 802 CE until its demise in the 14th century CE, the Kuma Empire held sway over much of Southeast Asia. At the heart of the empire was the highly urbanized capital city, Angkor, containing the royal palace, the state temple, and enormous artificial reservoirs, or barres, This part of Cambodian history is known by historians as the Angkor period, mostly because of the Angkor Wat legacy. Angkor, which is the city which Angkor Wat Lives in during its peak in the 11th to 13th centuries was the most extensive pre industrial urban complex in the world. That's all you'll get for today. I will annoyingly skirt over Anchor Wat for the rest of the episode so I can tease you into listening to next week's episode, which is all about that ancient incredible temple that was a city or city that was a temple. So, who founded the oh so incredible Kuma Empire? It's mostly attributed to a man named John Arman II, who in 1802 kind of formed the beginning of the empire. In a Hindu ritual, he declared himself Chakravardin, which in Sanskrit, the Koma Emperor's language, means universal ruler, so like emperor. He also declared himself a devaraj, which is Sanskrit for god-king, giving future royalty that divine authority. His legacy started in eastern Cambodia, where he declared that section's independence from a wider neighboring empire or society. But as he expanded the empire, he established the first recognized capital, Harihara La, near modern town of Rolus, and about 15 kilometers or nine-ish miles from the famous ancient city of Angkor, but not specifically the temple Angkor Wat. Do a quick side note here. Angkor Wat is a temple complex. It's huge and gorgeous and it's in my top three places to visit before I die. Angkor is a city itself. It holds a ton of other Hindu and Buddhist temples as well as ancient urban areas and hospitals etc etc. So just kind of keep that in mind because we'll talk a lot about Angkor the city today. We will not be talking about Angkor Wat because that's next week. (laughs) Javavarman II was the first king who established the Kuma Empire, and his successors kept extending the territory of Kambuja, which is what the inhabitants called the Kuma Empire when they were living in it. Indravarman I, which was the fourth ruler after Javarman II's son and grandson, he reigned from 877 to 889 and he managed to expand the kingdom without wars, and he initiated extensive building projects, things like the Bakong Temple, dedicated to Shiva around 881, and Angkor Wat, info to come. (laughs) So these were enabled by the wealth gained through trade and agriculture, meaning Indravarman I gained this wealth for his empire through trade and agriculture and then used it to create these buildings. Indra Varman, the I was followed by his son, Yazovarman I, who reigned from eight eighty nine to nine fifteen. He established a new capital, Ishadhara Buddha, the first city of the larger anchor area that would come to exist. And then of course, see the Instagram for what that area would come to cover. And for Every temple that I specifically name here, I am going to put on the Instagram because I think they are incredible. So this episode is going to have a couple posts. Go look at them. And there is a Wikipedia page that is just dedicated to pictures of these ancient Cambodian temples. So go to the episode description, click on that link, just go look at them. They're so cool. Anyway... (laughs) Yazovarman I also created the East Baray, which is a massive water reservoir, um, an artificial one, right, because he created it. It was measuring 7.1 by 1.7 kilometers, or 4.4 by 1.1 miles, so it is pretty big. And then he also created the city's central temple, which was built on Phnom Bakeng, a hill which rises around 60 meters above the plain on which Anchor sits. At the time of its construction, Phnom Baking, which is also the name of the temple, was believed to be the principal temple. It was the architectural centerpiece of the I's rule and of his capital, Ishadhara Buddha. Yeah. I'm going to post a ton of pictures, like I said, so go look at them. Uh, but a couple more things before we move on from Phnom Baking. It's a Hindu temple mountain dedicated to Shiva, and it's in Siem Reap province, Cambodia, which is in the northwest area. And actually, because it's on a hill as a temple mountain, it has a gorgeous view of Angkor Wat, the gigantic uh, gigantic temple, which would be constructed two years later, about 1.5 kilometers southeast in the jungle over there. So after Yazavarman I, the empire struggled a bit. There was a lot of upheaval and moving of capitals and internal slash external fighting. And then the next clear evolution of the empire came under Rajendravarman II, who ruled from 944 to 968. Rajendravarman II took up extensive building schemes. He established a series of Hindu temples in the Anchor area, including Pre Rup, a Hindu temple mountain that seems to have been used for funerals, and East Mebon, a temple located on an artificial island in the center of the East Beret and dedicated to his parents. And then he also constructed several Buddhist temples and monasteries under his rule. Can I just say, too, for a second, that the fact that it is 900 CE, and this civilization was able to create not only an artificial reservoir, a baray, but then they all put the land back in and created an island and then put a temple on that island that they created. It's incredible. I don't know why I'm so excited about architecture in, in this situation, but it it, it just, it's mind-blowing. So the son of Rajavardman II Jayavarman V, took over for his father in 968 and reigned until 1001. His rule was a largely peaceful period marked by prosperity and a cultural flowering. He established a new capital slightly west of his father's. And I put the name in there and then I forgot to look up the pronunciation. Named (laughs) Jayangari, I think. So, and as always, new temples were established to worship gods and the king and the king's family. And the most important of these temples was the Bonte Shrei, which is considered one of the most beautiful and artistic of the Angkor period. And then the second one is Te Keo, the first temple of Anchor, built completely of sandstone. After Javarman V, a lot of fighting dominated the Kumara Empire again. Surrounding states tried to conquer, and there were also like 10 years where there were three rulers all saying they were in charge, so that caused a lot of fracturing. um, Within the empire, within all of the brutal power struggles, ruler Sur varman II stopped the internal fighting and oversaw the building of Angkor Wat over a 37-year period. And we'll get more into that next week, of course. Another hint. Wink, wink. <laughs> Another period followed in which kings reigned briefly and then were violently overthrown by their successors. Um, and it wasn't until nearly a century later in the 1200s that the legacy started to pick up again. Welcome to the golden age of the Khmer Empire and its eventual decline. (laughs) The man considered Cambodia's greatest king, Javavarman VII, ascended to the throne in 1181. He was a military leader and a prince under previous monarchs and had incredible military successes both before and during his 40-year reign. He's known as Cambodia's last great king for three major reasons his military successes, unification of the Khmer Empire that had been fractured for nearly a century, and very noteworthy building projects. So as cool as all the fighting and wars are, like I said, I'm feeling very architectural today, so we're going to kind of skip over the fighting and focus on the building projects. Jaya Varman VII established a new capital, now called Thom which is also known as the great city in the center, the king, which he was a Mahayana Buddhist. He had constructed as a state temple, the with towers, which bared faces of Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara. <laughs> Basically they're like 10th level, super dedicated Buddhist followers. Um, And each of these faces were several meters high carved out of stone. They are absolutely incredible. Then other notable mentions, which again are on the Instagram. Go look at them. They're gorgeous. Ta Praham was built for his mother, Priya Khan for his father, and Bante Kadi Nikpin, which is an artificial island with a temple on it. Um, And then the reservoir of Shra Jayavarman VII also oversaw the construction of an extensive network of roads that connected the entire empire, and it seems to have had rest houses for travelers going from city to city, which leads you know, archaeologists and historians to believe that this was these roads were well-traveled and well-used, and we know that the Kumar Empire had a big trade economy, so that would make sense. And then finally, under Javavarman VII's rule, a total of 102 hospitals were established. And that's what researchers believe to be the world's first healthcare system. Then after the death of Javavarman VII, his son Indravarman II reigned from 1219 to 1243. And then he was succeeded by Jayavarman VIII, who reigned until 1295. Now, this is going to get a little confusing, because so we're going to get into the religious aspect of the kings for a second. So the Kumara Empire swayed back and forth between Buddhism and Hinduism as to like who, what religion the kings subscribed to. Now, we started in Hinduism, if you remember. Varman II declared himself god-king in 1802 in a Hindu ritual, and that was the foundation of the Angkor period. And then it seems during that century of, like, fighting and struggle, Buddhism kind of sneaked into the Koma Empire without too much fuss, and then the two religions more or less cohabitated. I think for quite a while, too, they were both considered official state religions, Hinduism and then a certain type of Buddhism. But starting... um, with Jayavarman VIII's reign in uh, about 1243, he was not having any of that peaceful openness and acceptance. Oh, no. He followed Hindu Shaivism. I think. Hindu Shaivism, which is a type of Hinduism that worships Shiva. I don't know why it's not Shivism, but it's not. There's an A in it. Okay. Shaivism, which worships Shiva, and Shiva is one of the principal deities of Hinduism. I won't go on too long of a tangent on Hinduism, but it is good to get a general understanding. So, Hinduism has three main deities, and within that, Shiva Shiva is one, and he's often known as the Destroyer. And then in Hindu Shaivism, he is the head honcho. He is called the Supreme Lord, um, and he is the being capital B, being who created and now protects and transforms the universe. Jayavarman VIII was really intense, apparently, really subscribed to this idea, and he hated Buddhism, the other prominent religion. And Buddhists are known for meditation and spiritual and physical labor and their path to achieving enlightenment, which they called nirvana. And our man was not having any of that, right? He believed in the Supreme Lord and he was the only one transforming the universe, not these meditating people trying to reach nirvana. So he destroyed many Buddha statues in the empire and converted temples from Buddhism to Hinduism. But, plot twist... Java Yarman VIII lost his throne to his son in law, Srindravarman, in 1295. And guess what? Srindavarman followed Theravada Buddhism. This is the oldest school, uh, the oldest accepted school of Buddhism. And because Srindravarman, that one is a hard one. Um, because he followed this type of Buddhism, and it was so radically different from Jaya Varman the eighth's sh- like, harsh Hindu rules, a lot of historians think that that upset the social odor of the Kumra empire. And not only because it was a massive shift, but because Buddhism upsets the idea of the kings being divine. Under Buddhism, Buddhist rule, kings are no longer deities, and that meant that the people didn't need to appease them as much, right? And they definitely didn't have to build all those elaborate temples to the Hindu gods that gave the kings their power. And thus, we start into the decline of the Kumar Empire. There are a few caveats. First, after all my research, I've decided I really don't like the term social collapse, and especially not in this case. So, a society isn't strong one day and gone the next right it's not a sinkhole and so for example angkor wat the huge temple that sat at the most prevalent capital angkor was never abandoned even when the population dwindled people were still living there it it wasn't even like rome where there was a major event that we can point to right and go oh yeah when when Constantinople fell. That, that's definitely the end of that chapter. right? Instead, the Kuma Republic declined. It lost some of its social order, it lost people, the, the ruling class lost some of, some of their authority, and the environment changed. That all left them vulnerable for eventual colonization and therefore eventual extinction. As we go into the end of the Kuma Empire... More, because we're going down our timeline, we are talking about the decline, not the de- cl- not the collapse. It's just the weakening of this once massive and great empire. In the Perspectives on the Collapse of Anchor and the Kummer Empire, um, which is a chapter in a book, the authors explained, quote, urban and agricultural extensification, which basically means like over-farming, <laughs> Infrastructural development and the rise of densely populated urban areas significantly degraded the local environment, increased dependence on an overextended infrastructural network, and created systemic vulnerabilities to social and environmental change, unquote. So you can see, right, just from that one quote, there's a hundred different factors that go into the decline of an empire. And there is historical and archaeological evidence to show the population decline of Angkor, starting in the 13th century, concurring with social, political, and cultural changes. But with all that said, with full disclosure, no one's really sure why it failed in the end. I have my favorite theory, and I'll share that at the end. But let's go through some other ideas as people are trying to understand how this, the biggest ancient civilization that the world ever saw, how it declined. There are three favorite overarching themes. First is that shift from Hinduism to Buddhism. Second is foreign invasions and internal slash external political pressures. And then third is ecological or environmental shifts. So number one, foreign pressure. Like I said before, there were there was a lot of fighting and internal-slash-external conflict through the thousand years or so that the Kumar Empire was in existence. Some historians believe the theory that a growing Thailand civilization with its, you know, growing power wanted to take over Angkor. This is interesting for a couple reasons. First, maybe Angkor and the Kumar Empire in total did fall to a stronger military. But also, Anchor stood for several hundred years against violence and didn't fall. So if we're accepting that it did fall to this growing Thailand military, we also have to ask what weakened Anchor to the point that they would fall to Thailand, if that indeed is what happened. So at risk of beating a dead horse, you can see that even in the simple theory of foreign pressure, there were several factors. Mostly, and mostly this this weakening before we could even get to foreign pressure is attributed to social and religious change. Which leads us to number two, the shift from Hinduism to Buddhism. It is also important to remember, like I said earlier, that the Kumar Empire coexisted with religions for a long time. There were a lot of Buddhist kings even when the empire was dominantly Hindu, but we had that one Hindu king that was not tolerant and that did cause some issues. But basically, this theory goes that when Buddhism became the new religion of the higher class and like kind of settled into that role, the monarchy lost their divine power and therefore the societal structure was upset, making the empire more fragile. On the surface, it's a pretty good theory, but there's not a lot backing it up. Religious changes, even if they did create some weakness, were not catalysts for the large decline of the Kumar Empire. So while that is a favorite of some of the older historians, as our understanding of the empire has gotten better throughout the years, it's pretty clear that it was a factor, but it definitely was not the reason. And on to number three, ecological slash environmental issues. So, the Kumar Empire was centered around what's called hydraulic cities by some historians. So, those are cities that revolve around the tight control of water. The state run networks of barrays, reservoirs, and canals allowed for multiple crops of rice per year, the biggest commodity in the Kumar Empire's economy. But the problem with this system is a tale as old as time. They overused their land, and that led to erosion and soil degradation, and that meant that they couldn't cultivate as much rice. As the Perspectives chapter said, quote, A race to the bottom ensued. New channels and reservoirs were dug to replace defunct sections of the network with ever-decreasing returns until the system ceased to function entirely. With Anchor's elites no longer able to guarantee the provision of water and rice to their subjects, the polity itself finally fell victim to its enemies. End quote. So basically, this theory goes, with the breakdown of the water system and the failure to create multiple rice crops a year, the society also broke down. Not everyone likes this theory, but some people say that even a slight increase in rice production. So being able to do more than one rice production with these hydraulic cities would have sustained a big and growing population. And therefore, a decrease would have destabilized the civilization. And now on to my personal favorite theory. A combination of the three things above plus an inability to adapt. And that probably all contributed to the weakening of the empire so much that they fell prey to outside military pressures and then colonization when that finally came in the latter half of the millennium. Quote, In essence, anchors infrastructure imposed a path dependency effect as infrastructure became progressively less adaptable to changing circumstances and society became ever more limited in its range of responses to external challenges. End quote. The whole Khmer Empire was this huge interdependent system. And so when one part rusted, the whole system grinded down, right? That's the idea. So the anchor period stuff is really long lasting. It's why we've got a thousand temples that have lasted these centuries. But that also means that it wasn't adaptable right? They were so sturdy in their own ways and they were stuck in their ways. And so when the ways started to change, the society that these incredible buildings were created by, they just couldn't keep up. For a really quick conclusion of the decline, there is no answer. (laughs) All of the ideas seem to kind of work together to make the society fade away rather than just collapse. That's the only thing I'm confident about. Though the Khmer Empire has faded out, its culture and religion is still very cool to learn from, and some of it is still alive in Cambodian traditions today. So let's dig in. One of the world's largest ancient cities lay in the jungles of Southeast Asia in the greater Angkor region located in contemporary Cambodia. This medieval site was home to the Angkor or Kumar Empire, from the 9th to 15th centuries. Our research suggests that this settlement may have been home to between 700,000 and 900,000 people at its height in the 13th century. This means that the population of Anchor was roughly comparable to the almost 1 million people who lived in ancient Rome at its height. This is a quote from research published by the University of Oregon. The first who did a number of scientific protocols to estimate the demographics of the Anchor period. They used a technique called LIDAR, I think, to find traces of urban landscapes, mounds that represented Anchorian houses that were built out of organic materials long rotted away. The researchers at the University of Oregon, through all this technology and sciencey stuff that I do not understand, were able to map three distinct areas of occupation. First is termed by the University of Oregon team as the Civic Ceremonial Center. That holds places like Anchor Wat and it's where major events went down. It also was home for a lot of people like priests, crafters, teachers, and artisans, um, as well as obviously the ruling class. And then second is the surrounding living areas and they were the farmers of the area, um, the rice keepers and such. And then, third was the road and the canals. There isn't a whole lot known about how these roads and canals worked, but as we discussed earlier, a lot of complex systems were built. And were, uh, all of the historians and archaeologists feel pretty safe to conclude that trade and commerce were rampant. So, a lot of people were using these roads. So, that's the gist of the people. But what were they like? And what did they do? Before we get into the meat, most of what we know about the Anchor period's culture and society comes from a Chinese diplomat, Zhu Dagon. I'm just gonna be American with his name. I'm so sorry. Zhu Dagon, who wrote The Customs of Cambodia about the first five centuries of the empire. So keep in mind that this is a subjective account and a translated account. And and there also is not a whole lot that confirms Dagon's account. But historians and archaeologists alike seem to trust him pretty well. Chinese diplomats were pretty common in the empire, so I guess there's no reason to assume he'd be, you know, springing a false narrative. So he talked all about the incredible temples around Anchor, as well as the everyday life of the people and about how the ruling class functioned around their people. A lot of this section will be be relying on his writing. So let's discuss the culture and society of the Yankurian people. In the Kumar Empire, hierarchy ruled the social order. There was a hierarchy based on power over water and rice management, and there was a hierarchy reflecting the Hindu caste system. If you're unfamiliar with the Hindu caste system, I'll run through it real fast. So the Hindu religion believes in reincarnation. As a Hindu, it's your duty to live the best life that you can so that you can build your way up in each life, clear up until you've lived the best life that you possibly can and you ascend to, to heaven rather than be reincarnated. With that thought in mind, there are level of humans based on perceived value, right? Because you have to have the levels you can go through to get to heaven. At the highest caste are the priests and the wealthy right? And at the very bottom are the poorest rural people. For a long time, actually, these people were known as the untouchables because they were designated as dirty. They always had to do the really unpopular, unholy jobs, things like that. And another thing to know about the Hindu caste system is that it is not the same as class. You are born into a caste system and you do not leave it. So in a society that puts merit in the caste system, you're stuck where you're born. The caste you're born into dictates your entire life, who you can marry, the education you can get, the jobs you can perform. So that's a really quick and rushed rundown version of the very complex Hindu caste system. But it seems that the Kumar Empire subscribed to that hierarchy as that's why it's important. So let's talk about the Kumar kings. We briefly discussed the divinity of the Kumar kings when do, when we talked about Jayavarman II, the first king, and how he went through what some call a, quote, grandiose consecration ritual, unquote, on the sacred mount, oh man, Mahendrapavarta, this ritual proclaimed Jayavarman II as universal monarch or the god-king, and this was all done under Hindu rites, rituals, and beliefs. Because for most of its life, the Kumura Empire was a Hindu state, but a specific type of Hinduism uh, was followed. It was influenced by the, the Devarajam, known as a religious order of the god-king. So it's through this that... Jayavarman II and all his successors were able to lean on divine power to push forward whatever agenda they wanted, including these gigantic buildings like Angkor Wat created to celebrate that specific king. Now, because the king was such a big divine deal, there was a court system that you compare to like that you could compare to like the English or other European monarch courts, where there's royalty and then there's the aristocracy, etc., etc. The royal courts of the Khmer Empire are said to be famous for grand ceremonies, which were often held in the capital city of Angkor. Here's an account by the Chinese diplomat Zhou Dagon during Intravarman III's reign. And again, please note that because it's a translation it might, you know, it probably differs from the original. When the king goes out, troops are at the head of his escort. Then comes flags, banners, and music. Palace women numbering from three to five hundred, wearing flowered cloth with flowers in their hair, hold candles in their hands and form a troop. Even in broad daylight, the candles are lighted. Then come other palace women, bearing rural paraphernalia made of gold and silver. Then come the palace women carrying lances and shield with the king's private guards. Carts drawn by goats and horses, all in gold, come next. Ministers and princes are mounted on elephants, and in front of them one can see, from afar, their innumerable red umbrellas. After them comes the wives and concubines of the king, in palaquins, carriages, on horseback, and on elephants. They have more than one hundred parasols flecked with gold. Behind them comes the Sovereign, standing on an elephant, holding his sacred sword in his hand. The elephant's tusks are encased in gold, and only the ruler can dress in cloth with an all-over floral design. Around his neck, he wears about three pounds of big pearls. At his wrists, ankles, and fingers, he has gold bracelets and rings all set with cat's eyes. When he goes out, he holds a golden sword of state in his hand. End quote. I just have to say real quick, I only realized as I was as I was just reading that into the mic that the king is standing on the elephant. <laughs> he 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 can't just sit on like a cool um saddle. Do you saddle an elephant? I don't know. He has to stand. I think that's hilarious. I wonder how many of them fell off. <laughs> but back to the script. <laughs> So it's pretty fancy, right? Um, And to be honest, our U.S. parades hold no weight to those of ancient civilizations. I mean, like, where's all the gold? Instead, we just get gigantic balloons that look demented or crush people. (laughs) Um, I mean, I I guess at least there's no concubines. (laughs) Anyways, so that's what the king and the royal court were up to on any given day. But what about the plain Janes and Joes? So to begin, let's talk about housing, because this is an architecture podcast now. Quote, the royal palace, officials, residence, and great houses all faced east. The palace lies to the north of the gold tower with the gold bridge near the northern gateway. It's about five or six li in circumference. The dwellings of the king's relatives and senior officials are large and spacious in style, very different from the ordinary people's homes. The roofs are made entirely of thatch, except for the family shrine and the main bedroom, both of which can be tiled. The homes of the common people have roofs made only of thatch. They dare not put up a single tile. Although their houses vary in size depending on how wealthy they are, they dare not build houses to rival the official residences. Unquote. So that translation of Dagon's findings came from the National Library of Australia. And as you can see, even in housing, the power hierarchy prevailed. Where you were born determined the type of life you would have. In terms of way of life, rice farming was the biggest thing. It seems, though, that the Kumara Empire was a little behind on textile production. Zhu Dagon wrote that the women in Cambodia did not know how to work a needle and thread, how to produce silk, or even how to spin yarn. Instead, quote, the only thing they can do is weave cotton from kapok, end quote. For clothing, Dagon said they wore sampot, which is the name for traditional Cambodian garb. It's one piece of cloth that goes between the legs and then is secured in the back by a belt. Dagon said that, quote, nobles and kings wore finer and richer fabrics, end quote, but I think they still wore the same style. For women, they wore an extra strip of cloths over their chests, and if you were a noble woman, that extra cloth would go over the shoulder, over one shoulder. Both men and women also wore kramas, Again, this is a traditional Cambodian piece. It's a decorative piece of cloth that can be worn in multiple ways from belt to shawl to scarf. Um, it seems to have even been used as battle as a garot. apparently. Usually it's red and or blue, and it has a, a gingham design. Now, I've touched briefly here and there on religion, but let's spend a solid minute or two on it specifically. So the main religion, which societal structure was built around, was Hinduism, but Buddhism was a very close second. Vishnu and Shiva, two of a powerful Hindu trio of deities, were the most worshipped. There are over a thousand temples from the Angkorian period, and really the majority of them are dedicated to Vishnu or Shiva, along with a divine god in charge at the time. So temples like Angkor Wat were even known as the realm of Vishnu. However, Hindu ceremonies and rituals, official ones done by Hindu priests known as Brahmins, were pretty confined to the ruling elite. The others kind of just had to find their own way to worship. And that's probably why Hinduism and Buddhism could kind of coincide uh, for quite a while. And Mahayana, mm -hmm, Mahayana, yeah, Mahayana Buddhism was an official religion for quite a while alongside Hinduism until Theravadism Buddhism came and wiped both of them out. (laughs) And I've got two extra pieces, little tidbits of description from the National Library of Australia's translation of Zhu Dagon's observations. The first is what Dagon called the Walled City, which was Anchor Tom. Quote, the walls of the city, are about 20 lee in circumference there are five gateways each of them with two gates one in front of the other around the outside of the city walls there is a very large moat this is spanned by big bridges carrying large roads into the city the five gateways of the city are all alike the parapets of the bridges are all made of stone and carved into the shape of snakes each snake with nine heads Fifty four deities are all pulling at the snake with their hands and look as if they are preventing it from escaping. Lubantom, which was Ankar Wat, is about one li beyond the south gate. It is about ten li in circumference and has several hundred stone chambers. Ten li east of the city walls lies the eastern beret. It is about a hundred li in circumference. In the middle of it, there is a stone tower with stone chambers. And in the middle of the tower is a bronze reclining Buddha with water constantly flowing from its navel. Unquote. I absolutely love it when we can find historical records like this. Like it just it gave me shivers just reading that. Because reliable or not, objective or not, this is someone who saw what we now consider ruins in their prime. He described for us things that we'll never be able to see, no matter how good the scientists and anthropologists are. And then finally, my second piece, because I'm a writer, I thought it was cool that Dagon added in how Angorian Cambodians wrote. Quote: Everyday writing and official documents are all done on the skin of moonjacks, deer, etc., that is dyed black. To write, people use a kind of powder like chalk, which is rolled into a little stick called suo. The markings can be erased using something wet. End quote. All right, folks, that is it for today. I know sabbaticals are the worst, so if you've been listening since the beginning, this is especially for you. Thank you. And if you're new, welcome. I'm so glad to have you, and I'm so excited to share my my niche history stories with you. And the best part is that if you're new, you didn't have to wait a month for this episode. You're able to binge all nine. Like always, head over to the Instagram. I promise the pictures are gorgeous. Please go look. And if you have any questions or suggestions, email me at nishihistorypodcast at gmail.com. I also don't think I ever said what the Instagram was in this episode. It's history underscore pod, and it is also in the episode description. Please like and subscribe and all that on whatever platform you're listening on. And I will see you next week where we will open another time capsule to a Nishi tale in history.